Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dodds. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. As Ryan was talking about uh, on Easter last week, we concluded our study in the book of Luke, and this week we are beginning a five-week sermon series entitled Easter and the Emotions. And we'll be spending the next five weeks in the Psalms and considering our emotional lives in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And the Psalms are hymns and prayers of God's people. They are prayers inspired by God for the purposes of being sung and spoken to him in every circumstance uh, and season of life. They divinely awaken us to what we are feeling, what we're thinking, and they give us lenses through which to interpret the full spectrum of all that we experience in this world, the wonderful, the awful, and everything in between. The Psalter shapes our emotions. God's word in the Psalms shapes our emotions and thoughts to fall in line with the instruction they give and the promises they offer. And though many of our emotions can cause us great distress, both acutely and chronically, we are not a people without hope. And so as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus, we know that we live in a season before our own full resurrection. And that means that we do still struggle deeply, that we will still struggle deeply with difficult emotional lives that are the result of a broken, sinful world and just broken us. We still groan inwardly. We still long to be set free along with the rest of creation. And through our reading and singing of these sacred praises, our hearts and minds and lives will be conformed, conformed more to the image of Jesus, whose emotional life was shaped by these psalms, whose emotional life was described by these psalms. Now please know that, this is, that our hope is not uh, to, to diagnose or to re recommend medical treatment for any of these emotions in the extreme. Our, our emotional and spiritual health is not something that we expect a 30-minute sermon to solve um, or even five 30-minute sermons to solve. But rather, this is what we hope, that we will find comfort in the Psalms that we will find life in the living word of God, that we will find hope in his binding covenant promises. We hope that you will leave feeling more equipped to pray for yourself and for those around you that struggle as well when it comes to these emotions. And we do hope that we will all find greater trust in the Lord whose greatest promise to all of us is this. I will never leave you I will never forsake you. So today we come to Psalm 56 to talk about fear. So, in the book of 1 Samuel, we read about the rise of King David. Anointed as the next king of Israel, David is a humble shepherd who has grown in knowledge and prominence as Israel's true warrior and unlikely heir. And King Saul, who is the seated king, has been eager to get his hands on David. His envy and arrogance have mutated into an intent to murder David and keep the throne for himself. 
And Jonathan, Saul's son, knowing his father's jealousy, knowing his father's bloodthirst, and having a true kinship and love for David, gives David warning, protection, and he helps him flee from Saul at a very critical moment. David eventually reaches Gath, where he is met by King uh, Achish, who recognizes him. King Achish walks up and he says, are you you the David that is in all the songs that everyone sings? About how even though Saul conquered his thousands, David conquered his ten thousands. And, And knowing that he's been recognized as this king on the run, he is immediately gripped with anxiety and fear. And so he pretends to lose his mind. He starts carving these indiscriminate markings on the gates and doors of the city, drooling all over himself, and Achish is like, okay, this is definitely not David. And I've got enough crazy people in this city. So he dismisses him, and then David runs and retreats to a cave in Agilom, which was a Canaanite city. So it would have been a place where he didn't have a friend in the world. It would be a dangerous place. And as the story goes, it says, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he, David, became commander over them all. Even with 500 at his side, David is still afraid. He is still lonely. He is still anxious. Which aids to the reality that we can be in a room full of people and be very lonely. We can be in a room full of kinswomen and kinsmen, arms akimbo, and still feel alone in fear. And it's in this time, it's in this state, that David actually writes Psalm 56. This is the context that he writes this in. We are a fearful people, and we do live in a fearful world. It will not, uh, I do not have to convince anyone of that. As a humanity, we're weak and fragile and finite. Our power and control in this world is limited. We truly control very little, and we are prey to much. A few weeks ago, Peter Kamont, who visited our family here from the UK, mentioned the ancient Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. I'm certain we all know that we do live in interesting times. And, and, and interestingly, the, the harm and the benefits seem to be equally matched. We live in both a world of globalized trade but also worldwide terrorism. Our interpersonal communication is instant, and yet our communities and relationships are often fragmented, fractured. There's, there's been a louder call for free personal association where we get to decide who we are, but amidst all that freedom, there's so much confusion over identity. We're witnesses to astounding medical advances, but also the worries about our health continue to increase. Living longer has not made worry go away. We're living in a time of unprecedented freedom and prosperity, but we see and experience remarkable anxiety about our world, about our future, both personally and nationally, globally. I mean, this is just one concentric circle of worry that we're all swimming in, whether we know it or not. Haven't we been worried more over the past five to ten years than before? Fear is an understandable response to such a troubled world, but this fear that is in all of us 
didn't come out of thin air. When the earth began in the garden, Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that they could become like God by taking this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating it, that they would be like God in that consuming, in that food. But when their eyes were opened and they knew good and they knew evil, what resulted in was shame because they knew that they were naked. They knew that they didn't have covering. They knew that they were vulnerable and shame came into the world. And what followed shame but fear? As Adam said, I heard God walking in the garden and I was afraid, so I hid. This is the origin of fear for all of us. Simply put, Adam and Eve grew up too fast. They had knowledge without wisdom and it led to respond, led them to respond to their fractured world with fear and distrust of one another and of God. Remember Adam's first words? The woman that you gave me. It's immediately where we went with our fear. And humanity has been there since, and it's where we are now. And our fears tell particular stories that we are tempted to believe. That's what fear does. Fear is like, it's like an unintentional storytelling that we're all born with. We're all born knowing how to do it. Both fear and storytelling have the same components and architecture. Fears have characters, that's villains and heroes. Fears have plots, beginnings, middles, and ends. Our fears contain all the vivid imagery that you would expect in the pages of any gripping novel, suspense, surprise, twist. And just like all great stories, our fears focus our attention on a question that is as important in life as it is in literature. What's going to happen next? Our fears make us think about the future, the immediate and the distant future. Our fears... (laughs) Bring up the past as well. Will it happen again? And will I be prepared this time? And in fear, just like fiction, one thing always leads to another. And the questions that all of us asked ourselves as fearful children are not at all different than the questions we ask ourselves as fearful adults. If this bad thing happens, what will happen to me? If this bad thing happens, what will happen to those I love? What will we do if it all goes wrong? And oddly enough, the answers to all of those questions always take the form of a story, a story that we're tempted to believe. And if we listen closely to our fears, we will hear them speak volumes about the things that matter to us most centrally. Just to pick three, because I know that I probably hit all of us in here. We all value life, money, and love, and so it's not a surprise when a fear of death, when a fear of mammon, when a fear of man is hovering below the surface of all of our fear. And the thing is, is that more control or physical relaxation is not going to be able to address these behemoths. Just these three. They can't be glossed over. They can't be coped with via mental trips to Tahiti. Unless we've concluded that denial is our only hope and that there are no answers to be found. 
And in all this fear, it has to be said, it has to be said that some of us are going to struggle with this our entire lives. For some of us, our fears are going to be situational. They're gonna be circumstantial, maybe even seasonal. Something bad happens, it happened in March, and every March, I just get a little bit more anxious. And for some of us, it's going to be daily. It's going to be hourly. It's going to be weekly. And the wonderful thing is, is that in Psalm 56, we're gonna see that there is room for that. There is room for that in God's word. And there are promises and ways for us to grow more maturely than Adam and Eve did. And fear isn't only an emotional experience. Our bodies are always scanning the terrain of our emotional lives. We are embodied souls. In fear, anxiety, and panic, our heart rate speeds up. We sweat. We have tension headaches. We grind our teeth, we have sleepless nights, shortness of breath, loss of appetite, high blood pressure. We are affected at every level by fear. And these fears point out our insatiable quest for control and how lonely and vulnerable we feel. Fear is what we feel as danger approaches and anxiety is what lingers after danger has passed. What fears do we have? Too many to count. But fears for our safety and the safety of those we love. Fears of how we'll die. Will it be by disease? Will I be alone? Will I be penniless? Fears about what happens after death. Will I be forgotten? Fears about living a meaningless life. Fears about being alone or unloved. Fears about what we might lose in this life, our youth, our parents, our kids, our spouse, our job, our health, our reputation. You want me to keep going? Okay, sorry. But God understands all of these threats. He understands all of these fears, and he never minimizes them. And that is, that's a critical issue for us in Scripture because if indeed Scripture was saying that these threats are no big deal and we just need to get over it, then we would never be encouraged to turn to the Lord for help. There would be no reason to turn to Jesus but the most primary thing that we do in this life as kingdom citizens is we pour out our hearts to the Lord. The God who comes close never minimizes your fear. He never minimizes your anxiety. And we do struggle, like I said, with more fears and anxieties than we know, but the Lord has a lot to say about this in Psalm 56. So let's... Let's begin uh, in the text. Now, while there are plenty of details to get into, really what I want to do, just to truly maximize our time, is I want to look at six different things in this psalm. And I want to walk through it uh, bit by bit. Number one, I think it's very important for us to notice that overall in this psalm, that, that David is doing something very, what I would say is very plain or very basic, but I, I find it to be at the same time profound. 
So the first thing, number one, he brings his entire reality and fear in one hand and what he knows of God's covenant promises in the other. He is literally running for his life, sure that he will be surrounded and killed, that this kind of oppression is relentless, and he comes to the Lord in desperate prayer, and he opens with a simple but incredible request. Be merciful. Lord, I need your mercy. I am overrun. It's, what I find interesting about this is that it's, it's actually, if you read the psalm, this is actually only one, one of two requests that he actually makes. The rest of the psalm, the rest of the psalm is David's description of his fears and his confidences in God's promises and character. But Lord, he begins this way, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he will do the same thing in verses five through 11. He brings specific specific things. He says, Lord, these are men that are waiting and lurking. They have their eyes on me and they're waiting for me. He does not downplay his sincere fear in light of God's promises, nor does he ignore God's promises in light of all that he's afraid of. And sometimes we do this. Sometimes we use the promises of God to dismiss or ignore our real fears. We're afraid or someone else shares their fear and perhaps we try to get to the gospel, we try to get to the truth too quickly right away before fully sharing our fear with the Lord. But David doesn't do this. He tells it exactly as it is. Maybe we read it and think, I think he's exaggerating, but he's not. I'm in a place where I have where I feel like there's no one really that's going to protect me. There's all that I am is subject to these other men that are lurking, that want for my life, they oppress me, they trample on me. That, the word trample is actually translated as swallow me up. This is what anxiety feels like, doesn't it? When we feel it in fear, it feels like it's going to devour us. Our fear can be so loud sometimes also that, and so overwhelming that God's promises get completely ignored. It's the reality that gets its day. We get to gospel promises too slowly or not at all. And really, at its worst, our anxiety can feel like this IMAX HD screen with Dolby surround sound and God's promises is, they're like a little 12 inch black and white television. But God has covenant promises in this psalm that have the substance and power to, in, to meet the intensity of all of our fears. When we pray, we can do exactly what David is doing. In our fear, we can come like this and say, this is my circumstance, and these are your promises, and I'm coming to pour them all out to you. And as you see, David goes back and forth. He goes to the reality. This is where I'm afraid. This is what I'm afraid is going to happen. And then he goes to the promises, but I trust you because you're all that I have. 
You're the God who I trust. You're, it's your word that I praise. It's your word that I trust. This is a way that we can engage the Lord in prayer to fight our fear and fight for trust. Number two, I want to draw your attention to the chiasm in verses three and four. A chiasm is a literary device. It's really meant to draw our attention to something of central importance. And in this case, the central verse is, in God whose word I praise, translated as, God, I will praise your word. And so I think David is telling us that when we praise God's word, when we ascribe beauty, honor, and dominion to Christ, our fears actually take a hit. And our trust is fed. So David anchors his trust in the praise of God's word. Because he's talking, he says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. I praise your word. In you I trust. I shall not be afraid. The axis of his trust, the axis of our trust, the praise of God's word, the praise of Jesus to ascribe to him honor and dominion and glory. And I think that this truth is best illustrated in another psalm, in Psalm 19, where David writes that because God's word is perfect and sure and right and pure and true, that the praise of God's word brings revival to our souls. It, it makes us glad, it makes us wise, it rejoices our heart, it enlightens our eyes, it opens our eyes to, to a greater reality. Praising God's word will change us. And I think practically this puts a particular emphasis for us on the Sunday gathering. Because when we come in here, we're not just singing songs that we love and, encourage, and hearing an encouraging antidote. We come to the Sunday gathering ready to praise God's word in song, confession, preaching, and communion. And there's so much going on in this gathering that we, that, uh, that we <laughs> there's so much more going on in this gathering than we know. And it's particularly important when it comes to fighting our fears and trusting God's promises. Number three, this entire prayer is actually an effort from David to entrust himself to the Lord. Even though he knows that fear will return in verses three, four, 10, 11, he's saying, I will be afraid. I know that it's coming. There's the certainty that I will, not only will I be afraid, there will be days when I'm afraid, mornings when I'm afraid, moments when I'm afraid, weeks when I'm afraid. But David doesn't say, on those days and those moments, I'll, I'll cope. He doesn't say, when I'm afraid, I'll distract myself. No, he says, when I'm afraid, rather than trying to figure out how to master my environment, to take it underneath my control, figuring out how to work all the possible outcomes and purposes. I put my trust in you. You are the first person that I'm coming to. I will not put my trust in what parts of my life I can take into my own hands. And I know for us that's really hard because when we get afraid we get busy. We get to work, right? Or we either disappear we, f- we fight, we, f- we flee, or we freeze. David says, no, this is what I do. I, I fly, but I fly to you. I fly to you first. I will not trust in what control I can wield in any given situation. 
I'm not being a dependent child if I did so. And dependent children trust their parents in the midst of their fear. When David's afraid, he entrusts himself to God in the very same way that Jesus, when he was reviled, entrusted himself to the Father. And when I say, here's the encouragement, entrust yourself to the Lord. You really wonder, like, well, what does that look like? Do I, does this, do I, do I stand like this? Or, like, what does that look like to actually do that? I wonder if this will help. We have a, a five-year-old daughter named Penelope, and she has uh, periodic nightmares. And she just, she panics. She cries. She's disoriented. She sees things that aren't there, and usually when we come into the room, if she's been crying, she kind of looks like she doesn't know what's going on. She's completely disoriented to reality. Here's what she doesn't do. She, does not, she no longer tries to work those things out on her own. She is not in the dark trying to make sense of her panic, argue against it. No, this is ridiculous. I'm just being silly. No, her first thought is, I need to get to daddy. getting to our bedroom, getting close to us. She cries out my name. Sometimes I get to her before she gets to me. And sometimes she gets all the way to the foot of the bed. She gets up into the bed. She gets under the covers. And I ask her what's wrong, and then she gives me the detailed count of what's happened. Someone was trying to take her. Someone was trying to take me away from her. Someone was trying to take mommy. Someone was trying to take Edie. It's disorganized. It's broken up with tears and rapid breathing. And sometimes even to tell me again what's going on makes her scared again. She's telling me about how real it is, how scared she is, but she's come to us for protection. She has come to us to listen to everything she says. This is what it looks like for my five-year-old daughter to entrust herself to me. And it looks identical, identical almost, for us running to the Lord in need. We don't try to figure it out on our own. We run to him in prayer and we say, help, help me. In that moment, Penny is learning to trust and she's trusting. She is trusting in that moment and she is learning how to do it. When we run to the Lord, we are doing the same thing. We are trusting in our flight to him and we are learning to trust him in our flight to him. And for us as adults who are absolutely children, as our father is far older than we are, this is what it looks like for us to entrust ourselves to him. Number four. I want you to notice what David asks in verse seven. This is the second request that he makes. The first one was, be merciful. Lord, I'm in need of mercy. I'm in need of grace. And the second thing he says, which is a, it's a real challenge for us to pray such things. Lord, for their crime will they escape. Cast in your wrath, cast down the peoples. God, will this kind of sin go unpunished? Oh God, rise up and strike these men down. 
perhaps this is something that we don't often consider, but our triune God is, is a king, is a father, is a master, is a counselor and a shepherd, but he is also a holy warrior. He is a shield and a refuge, but he is a champion. He defends, but he also attacks. He blocks, but he also strikes. And in Psalm 35, David is gonna ask God to stand up for him again, but this time he says, don't just do it with the shield. Lord, grab the spear and the javelin and go out and fight for me. Fight for your people. Now, perhaps we often pray defensive prayers. Guard me, protect me, hem me in. And these are fine prayers. But Jesus has weapons for offense as well. It's a challenge to ask God to be aggressive with our assailants. So maybe sometimes it's hard for us to think that that's actually what he's doing. But we learn from God's own word that we can ask for this. We can ask God to be rough with what attacks us. To be rough with our fear. To be rough with our anxiety. And to put it down for good. David is saying it will do something very real for our fear if we know that Jesus rides out into the horde of our anxiety to do deadly battle with it. Not just to hold it back and block the door, but to put it down. Number five. Really hope that we can appreciate the tender nearness of God in verse eight. Most certainly, this is the emotional center of the psalm. That he is the one who keeps record of our tossings, our wanderings. He keeps our tears in a bottle. They are kept in his record, in his scroll, in his book. In all of our fear, we have a God who keeps record and account of all our pain and distress. This is partly what feeds David's trust of God. The reason I trust you is not only because you are good and wonderful, but in a, speci in a specificity, because you are aware of all my pain. You keep a record of all of it. This is the God who keeps a record of Israel suffering in Egypt and comes to deliver them. He keeps a record of, of, of Israel in the wilderness as they're wandering. He keeps a record of David sleepless in a cave, sure that he will die. And he keeps record of your pain as well. I don't think it's a stretch at all to think that the reason God will be able to wipe away every tear in Revelation is due to the fact that he keeps a record of every one. He sees all of your fretting, all of your worry, all of your anxiety, and he knows your fears. And David says, this is where we can trust him, in his tenderness. And how wonderful that it would be in one moment we're asking him to strike down the enemy and be kind to us. This is the God that we are dealing with in our fear. This is the God who is who is coming to us to take care of us in our fear. And to add to this tenderness, look at verse nine. This I know that God is for me. Now I, we, we often have that phrase, I think here at Sojourn, I've heard that, it, like hey, we're for you, or I'm for you. 
And so I was tempted to actually overlook this and just think that it means exactly what I think, thought it meant. But it doesn't mean that God is for us. The Hebrew actually is more, it would read more this way. This I know, that you are mine. You are my God. Not just that he's there to support, not just that he, he is, he's our support, he's our refuge, he's our defense, he's our, he's our advocate. But this goes deeper. This says that God has betrothed himself to you. He's given himself to you. As if God is for me, as if it was like a gift that's for me. No, this is for you. And it's very different than being for us. The God of the cosmos doesn't just offer support in your crippling fear. He gives you himself. And finally, I want to take a look at verse 12 and 13 as we, as we close. But let me read this. I, David says this. After, after all this wrestling between my circumstances and my fear, where I can trust you, where I know that you are the one who fights for me, the one who is tender, the one who keeps record, the one who I can praise. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, performing vows and rendering thank offerings, that that is something that ancient Israel did. A part, a way that they actually transacted with God in the temple. And there are, basically, there are basically three kinds of offerings in the book of Leviticus, and this is what David is talking about. When the Israelites, when, when, a, when a sinner would draw near to God, they first brought a sin offering. And they would declare their faith in God who forgives, And then second, they would bring what was called an ascension offering, which ushered them into God's presence. It carried them up into God's presence. And then third, while in God's presence, they would offer a peace offering, which symbolized a shared meal in the presence of God. And here in verse 12, this is what David is talking about with these peace offerings. David is talking about a meal with God here. On Sundays, as we draw near to God in this place, we confess our sin and declare our faith in a God who forgives. Our prayers ascend, they go up before God, and he speaks to us through his word. And the crescendo of our time together is a peace offering, and it is here at this table. We bring bread and wine to God, and then he feeds all of us with it. It's our peace offering to him, because God has given us the promised land, but it's not yet cultivated. So we plant seeds, we harvest grain and grapes, we knead and we press, we bake and we ferment We bring God the fruit of our labors here and we remember that he is the giver of everything good. This is the table that has no fear attached to it. This is a table with, this is a meal with God without fear. 
and we have nothing to fear at this table. There is trust to be had. David, even in paralyzing fear, will not abandon the vows of covenant renewal. It feeds his trust. It anchors his trust. It anchors ours as well. And why would he do this? Because the Lord has delivered me from death. God, you have delivered my soul from the grave. What else would you not deliver me from? You'll keep me from falling. You'll keep me from failing. If we have been given Jesus, what will God not give us that's necessary? And this is crucial to David's trust. It's crucial to ours. Our world is filled with threatening possibilities, but the Lord has something to say, much to say in Psalm 56. He meets our fear with comfort to where our spiritual growth is not measured by whether or not we have eradicated fear, but by the degree that our fear has been married to trust. So let's recap, just to, to, to learn to trust God in the middle of our worry. This is what Psalm 56 tells us. Number one, when we pray about fear and anxiety, let us bring all of our worry, all of the circumstances, all of our, of our stories that we're tempted to believe in one hand and the promises and covenant promises of God in the other and pour them out before him. Number two, let's praise God in his word in the midst of our fear. It will build our trust. It will fortify our trust. It will fight fear. Number three, we will entrust entrust ourselves to him when fear comes. When the day of fear descends, we will run to him in prayer and say, help, take care of me, fight for me. Number four, we will ask God to fight against all that comes to assail us in our fear. He is ours. We are his. Number five, remember, we will remember that he keeps a record of all of our fretting, of all of our fear, of all of our pain. And number six, we will come to this table, to the communion table, ready to be fed by God. He will give us everything that we need. And the reason that all of this is even possible is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus was born into this world, the word became flesh and assumed the weight of our fear. Jesus became weak. He became dependent. He became vulnerable and mortal. And he didn't recoil from that fear. He entered into it to make it his own. He didn't recoil from our fear. He entered into it to make it his own and to transform it from within. And Jesus knew fear. He was not a passionless, stoic sage. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where he shrank from the cup of wrath that the Father was giving him, he sweat so severely in fear that he bled. The hours of the cross were hours of fear and anxiety and on the cross all of our fears were realized in full by Jesus. He became the one overrun by lurkers and plotters and schemers. He was the one who was swallowed up. 
He was the anointed king, swallowed in death. He was the word that was torn and twisted. And in the garden on the cross, Jesus sang Psalm 56 with his life. And this is the good news of Easter and the resurrection because God the Father has raised God the Son. He can now speak trust into our anxiety. He can now speak courage into our fear. He can now speak triumph in the midst of loss and loneliness. Wholeness and brokenness. Life in death. Now, scary possibilities still confront us at every turn, and at every turn, Jesus' message is the same in every circumstance, and he repeats the gospel command of Easter morning. Have you lost your life savings? Jesus says, do not be afraid. I will care for you. Are you... Are your kids acting out? Is your family falling apart? Jesus says, do not be afraid. I will be with you. Everything that you've worked for is starting to slip through your fingers and the ground around you is crumbling away. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I will be everything you need. You're sick and there's no cure. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am with you and I will raise you up on the last day. Sojourn, we truly have nothing to fear. Death died when Jesus went to the cross. In his resurrection, he triumphed once and for all over our greatest fear, the lonely, fearful tomb. If death is dead, what is left for us to fear? Death cannot touch us. And nor can the thousand little deaths that threaten us every day. The normal Christian life is power in weakness. And it sounds like this. Jesus, help me have mercy upon me. Be merciful to me. Jesus' help is power in weakness. And this reality has never been more necessary. We follow the fearless risen Jesus the one who rightly performed his vows, the one who rightly rendered his thank offering. He was the thank offering. He tells us again and again, ever and always, do not be afraid, I am with you. And by his great promises and mercy, he will one day bring fear to its final end. Let's pray. Father, we we acknowledge our frailty, our inability to control our world, our lives. Lord, we, we act in faithfulness. We make plans. And Lord, we, we ultimately know that control does not lie with us. And Lord, in this room where we are all fearful, we're all fearful of something because we all love something. And if we love, the degree to which we love, the degree to which we will be afraid. But I pray that you would take this psalm and so shape our hearts 
that we know that you're the God that we can come to and, and, and even be, even if David was exaggerating, that we can exaggerate with you, that we can say things that aren't logical. Like I feel like it's all gonna be taken away. I feel like I'm gonna lose everything. I feel like I'm going to die. That we can share that and, and in the same breath say, and you're the one that I trust. But I pray that we would see that it's not even necessarily, it's not only how David prayed, but that he prayed. Will you make us a people that come to you in fear, praying, calling upon your promises, remembering your promises, asking for mercy, asking for you to fight for us, remembering that you are tender and near and that you don't forget our tears. You don't forget our past either where we have been hurt, where we have been abused, where we have been. Or do you remember every tear? And that is part of why we can trust you. I pray that you would make us these people who come to you pouring out, who come to you and trusting ourselves. Say, Lord, you are mine and I am yours. Protect me. Fight for me. Put the enemy down. We'd be people who come to this communion table and say, I need to trust you. I want to trust you. I pray that we would come to this table and find maybe that our fear is a little bit more injured. Our trust is a little bit more steady. And that you would make us people, God, who come to sing your praises who praise the name of Christ and find that even in the midst of tears that our heart is soaring, how can that be? Oh, make it so in us, please. Please. Make us people who when fear comes, we trust you. Marry our fear to trust. Please, we pray. And we ask all of it in your name. Amen.